Isn't this a wonderful day within the church calendar where we uh, celebrate together the resurrection of Jesus Christ? I'd like to extend a, a really warm welcome. If you are visiting us today, it's just, just great to have you with us here this morning. I'm so glad that you're with us. As I said, this is a significant day in the church calendar as we reflect on Jesus of Nazareth. We walked this earth 2,000 years ago. He was crucified and buried, but on the third day he rose. This is a historical story. It is a true story. It's a true story because we see this true story in God's word, the Bible. It testifies to the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But as we meet together this morning, I want you to consider the following thing. I want you to have a real honest evaluation in your own heart and your own mind about what is Easter. What is Easter to you? I want you to do something for me. I want you to try and think about it in terms of punctuation marks. You say, well, that's pretty unusual. What do you mean by punctuation marks? Well, for instance, Easter to you may be a comma. It makes you stop. It makes you pause. It makes you think and and listen to the story of Easter. For you, Easter may just be a punctuation or a comma. Easter, for you, may be a full stop. You know, you've heard the message before. You've been on this earth X amount of years, some of you longer than others, and, and Easter to you is just a, it's just a ritual. Perhaps you even only come to church at Easter. I'm glad you're here. But, you know, Easter for you is really just a full stop. And, and what does a man dying 2,000 years ago have to really do with you? You know, you sort of feel on the outside, you feel like an onlooker looking in. And all Easter will ever be to you is just a story. And you've probably decided the story's not true. And that the story can never have any impact on your life. If that's you, Easter for you is a full stop. But you know, I pray that Today the Lord will open up your heart to the truth and the reality of the eternal importance of this message, of the Easter story. For some of you, uh, Easter may be described as an exclamation mark. A time of gratitude, a time of praise, a time of uh, great victory in the the resurrection of Jesus Christ. For you, this exclamation mark means that you've put your faith and trust in the fact that he is risen. His victory over death has brought to you a new life. It is the very cornerstone of your faith. It is 
Hope. Hope eternal. Hope beyond this world and hope that transcends you into God's very presence because one day you will be with him because of the resurrection of Christ. You see, as Michael Grain says in his book titled Man Alive, without faith in the resurrection there would be no Christianity at all. The Christian church would never have begun. The Jesus movement would have fizzled like a damp squid with his execution. You see, Christianity stands or falls with the truth of the resurrection. Disprove it, and you have disposed of Christianity. Pretty powerful statement. There was no resurrection. It would be like a damp squid. So it is a foundation stone for our faith, for those of us who say, yes, Easter is an exclamation mark. It's an exclamation point. But maybe for some of you here, you would use a question mark to describe what Easter means to you. You're not sure about some of the aspects of the story. They seem a little far-fetched. You doubt whether the story is actually true. Above all, you you struggle with the purpose of why would a man die? And why was this necessary? Why is this so important? And these are great questions. These are great questions. These are important questions, and I would say the most important questions. And this morning, I just want to spend some time answering these questions. I want to spend some time looking at an eyewitness account. You know what an eyewitness is? Someone who has seen the events and has recorded these events. An eyewitness account of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 27. If you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles up the front here. Please help yourself. John can distribute some. This will be our primary text for today, and uh, let's just uh, read it together. Matthew chapter 27, we'll start reading at verse 62. If you don't know where that is in your Bible, ask someone next to you, they'll help you uh, find today's text. So just to give you context, Christ has been crucified. He has died. He has been placed in a tomb. And then we have this account. Uh, just so you know, in, in, the, in the Bible we have four accounts of the, uh, the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ. One by Matthew, one by Luke, one by Mark, and one by John. And we're looking at Matthew's account today. And we'll integrate it with some of the other accounts just to provide some consistency across the text. So Matthew twenty-seven sixty-two. The next day... That is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, he is risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. 
Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. For he is risen, as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While I were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while you were asleep and if it comes to the governor's ears we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble so they took the money and did as they were directed and this story has been spread amongst the Jews to this day See, man has always tried to deny the resurrection. Always tried to deny the resurrection. As stated before, if the the resurrection did not occur, then Christianity falls down like a house of cards. You know, you've all played that game, haven't you? When you, when you, you grab playing cards and try to build houses and build towers and one small movement of the house of cards collapses. That is very similar to what the importance of the cornerstone of the resurrection is to our faith. If you disprove it, it falls down like a house of cards. Paul has stated this also uh, in one of his letters to the Corinthians. He says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is useless. You're still in your sins. And right from the early stages, we see that this is a central issue for these Pharisees and scribes to discredit the resurrection. And throughout the world's history, it has not changed. Continually, people try and discredit the resurrection of Christ. Some of the attempts to discredit the the resurrection are, are known as the swoon theory or the hallucination theory, or, or the wrong tomb theory. I'll explain those a little bit 
to you. And because the swoon theory sort of claims that Jesus did not actually die. The basis of trying to avoid the fact that Jesus rose again, well, he didn't actually really die. That bears contrary evidence to God's word. Just think about some of the evidence that we see in in the crucifixion and burial account of Jesus. Firstly, you have some seasoned Roman soldier standing at the foot of the cross. And what's his testimony? Surely this man was the Son of God. Past tense, he has died. A seasoned soldier knows death, especially a seasoned Roman soldier. He knows when people have expired. One of the proofs. They thrust a a spear into his side. Water and blood flowed. Evidently a, a biological phenomenon that happens when someone has died. Not to mention the 50 kilograms of linen that they wrapped Jesus' body in. I don't know about you, but if you've got a face cloth wrapped around your face many, many times, it's pretty hard to breathe. Even think about this this beautiful moment where where they grab Jesus' body off the cross, this limp, dead body, and lovingly wrapped it, anointed it, and wrapped his body. Joseph of Arimathea knew. Nicodemus knew. The soldiers knew. The crowd that witnessed the crucifixion knew that he was dead. If that's not enough evidence, his final cry. It is finished. Into your hands, O Father, I commit my spirit. He breathed his last. And the divine response was earthquakes and darkness covering the land. All pointing to the fact that Jesus physically died. You know, let's talk about death a little bit. I know it's, we're talking about resurrection today, but to put the context of re- the resurrection, we need to talk about death. One of the famous Greek poets, um, Euripides, said this, Death is the debt we all must pay. Death is a debt we all must pay. If you've watched National Treasure movies, you would understand that particular quote. It's quoted in there. Another more modern author by the name of Snydman writes this, We must face the fact that death is the one act in which man is forced to engage. The threat of being erased is the most treacherous of forced punishment. Pretty powerful quote. Death is a thing that we as humanity has to face. It's the one act in which we are forced to engage in at some point in time in our life. And I was doing some research on death. I know it's a pretty dumb thing to do research on because we see it all the time. But um, one, of the, one of the more humorous sides of death is when you start reading people's gravestones. Epitaphs. 
For instance, uh, a famous uh, warrior, Neapolitan, on his gravestone is this. If I die before my time and my body will be given back to earth to become food for worms, such is the fate which soon awaits the great Napoleon. It's on his tombstone. He understood the reality of death. Benjamin Franklin also did, and he has a slightly different take on death. He talks about it like this. And it's a beautiful epitaph, actually. Just think of a book as I read this. Think of a book. You know, a beautiful book with gilded gold edges and just think of that. Like the cover of an old book, its contents torn out and stripped of its lettering and gilding lies here food for worms. But the work shall not be lost for it will, as he believes, appear once more in a new, more elegant edition, revised and corrected by the author. Isn't that a wonderful epitaph? Franklin understood that this old body that was fading and wasting away would one day be renewed. But all these quotes, all these musings talk about the inevitability of death and why because death is the debt paid by our sinful human nature when God created man and woman placed them in a garden a beautiful garden a place where there was absolutely no no what's the word disformed creation place of paradise in Genesis 2 we read that the Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work and keep it and the Lord God commanded the man saying you may surely eat of every tree of the garden but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die From that point in time, we have all paid the consequences of Adam's fall. Romans 5 tells us very similarly. Romans 5 verse 12, Therefore, just as sin entered into the world through one man, and death came through sin. Verse 16 of the same chapter. For the judgment following one sin brought condemnation. Verse 17. For because of one man's sin, death reigned. Verse 18. Therefore, as one sin led to condemnation for all men. Verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Verse 21. So that as sin reigned in death. You get the picture. There is no escape. And death is an open door that says, welcome to eternity. Have you ever thought about it in that term? Death's an open door that says, welcome to eternity. Because beyond death is life. It's eternal. 
Our physical bodies are only here for a short period of time, but our soul will endure forever. Death is inevitable, it's universal, it's inescapable, and it's the door that, that, that is ajar there saying, welcome to eternity. And it's in eternity. The question is, where will you dwell in eternity? There are only two choices. The narrow road that leads to life and the broad road that leads to destruction. It's one road that is to eternal bliss in the presence of God with the saints. It's a place called heaven. The other road leads to eternal damnation, a place of destruction, a place of suffering for all eternity. So this is why this is so important as a cornerstone of our faith, the resurrection of Christ. So Christ died. The swoon theory is a lot of rubbish. He physically died because death was the thing that pays the debt for all humanity. Romans puts it this way, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God's eternal life. We'll explain that a little bit further in a minute. Other theories that are around about the resurrection, so this is the swoon theory, disputes the whole area of resurrection then you have the hallucination theory whoever brought this theory to the table must have been hallucinated when they did it that's all I can say about it so this, this was that actually Jesus may have died but they actually forgot where they put him and then they hallucinated to the fact that they may have saw him that's pretty ridiculous isn't it that's clutching at straws that's the hallucination theory but particularly my favourite is the wrong tomb theory. They forgot where they put Jesus full stop and they could never find him again. A pretty simple one to refute because he was alive. But then we see the oldest theory. We see the oldest theory known to mankind about trying to say Jesus didn't rise again and we see that in our text here today, don't we? What is the theory? It's the grave robber theory. <laughs> it's the kidnapping theory. It's the let's steal his body and let, uh, let, let's as disciples steal his body and fabricate a whole story about the fact that he has risen. This is what the Pharisees were concerned about. Look at these verses again in, in Matthew 27, 62 to 66. They went before Pilate. They said, remember the imposter. Look at the, the, the hatred of the language that they use about Jesus. Look at this imposter. He said he was going to rise, so let's make sure he does not. In all our human efforts, we'll make sure he doesn't rise. We'll, we'll commission a, a Roman guard to be put outside the tomb. There's debate about how many soldiers there were in the Roman guard, but there are a number. And let's seal the tomb, seal it with clay. They would seal it with clay like they'd almost um, 
it would almost be like potter's clay to try and put a seal around the tomb so you couldn't move the stone. And they'd, they'd put a rope between it to, to make sure the seal couldn't be broken when they put a Roman seal on there. And it just, it's incredible to see the hatred that is welled up in, in the Pharisees' hearts. The religious leaders of the day, they, they hated Jesus with a passion. And they said, we don't want him to rise from the dead because then the last fraud will be worse than the first. That is strong language. They're calling Jesus a fraud in all his ministry and all that he did. He claimed to be the Son of God. That was a fraud. He turned water into wine. He did miracles. He healed. That was all fraudulent practice, according to the Pharisees. He said, if he rises from the dead, they were thinking, well, they knew if he rose from the dead that he was no fraud. That's what they feared. That's what they feared. They feared the fact that if he rose from the dead, that everything that he claimed to be was true. You see, man's attempts are always like this when they try and discredit the the resurrection. Firstly, here the Pharisees made the, the observation, well, no one can rise from the dead. Uh, because they, you know, the Pharisees themselves had witnessed his crucifixion. They had witnessed his death. They had witnessed his limp and bloodied body being taken down off the cross. They knew he was dead, and this very request signifies the fact of that reality. And they were concerned that his disciples would snatch his body. When you think about the resurrection, realize that in the world we live, men and women always try to find an excuse not to believe. That may be you today. You may be trying to find an excuse not to believe. Oh, they stole his body. Oh, he never died. Oh, they placed him in the wrong tomb. I'd appeal to you today to look at the facts that God's word gives us so clearly. You see, even after the resurrection, the deception was still there. We read that in verse 11 through 15. Some of the guard, by the way, who had been knocked out by this, the, the angel coming and rolling the stone away. On the ground, as dead men, the text tells us. They woke from their slumber and they went into the city and told the priest, hey, the body is not there. The body is gone. And you know what? The response to that is, we'll pay you off. The religious leader of the day said, okay, let's empty our pockets. We've done it once for Judas to get the betrayal. 
will now do it to this guard of soldiers because you realize that their lives are on the line. <laughs> if anybody uh, escaped their guard, the punishment of escaping the guard was death. So we'll empty our, we'll empty our pockets, we'll pay these guys off. And by the way, if anyone asks you about it, tell them the story. His disciples came and snatched him. And then they said another astounding thing. He said, don't worry about your boss. Don't worry about Pilate. Don't worry about the governor. We'll pay him off as well. Read it. And if it comes to the governor's ears, so if, if this whole thing that the body is no longer there comes to Pilate's ears, what will we do? We'll satisfy him. Our pockets are pretty deep. We've been collecting temple tax for a very long time. We'll pay him off as well to satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So bribery and corruption, it's not a new phenomena. The soldiers were paid off, Pilate was paid off. The story that spread was that of grave snatching. This is the lie that spread and the lie continues to spread. But amidst this greatest deception that could be concocted by man stands the greatest single act of human history. And that's the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. In this text you have two Marys come to the tomb early in the morning. Before the dawn breaks, you have a Roman guard and you have an angel. I want you to note that none of these folks actually saw the resurrection. All they saw was the result of the resurrection. And one thing I was just, uh, just mulling over this week and it struck me for the first time. What was the significance of the tomb being open? What is the significance of the open tomb? You know, the seal of the tomb being broken, guards laying down as dead men. What's the significance of that? I don't think the significance is for Jesus to come out. I think that's already happened. Past tense, he has risen. The significance of the tomb being opened is so people could go in and see the evidence. So Mary's, the Marys could go in and see the evidence. In the John's Gospel, we see Peter and John go in and see the evidence. Look, here are the grave clothes. This is where he lay. Christ in his resurrected body can easily pass through a tomb. The stone was rolled away for you and I so we could see the evidence. The evidence that he is risen. Not only here, we, we see in other accounts through Scripture, the other witnesses. We have Peter, we have John, we have Mary and Mary. We have the disciples. They met him in Galilee. They saw the risen Lord. And then Corinthians tells us over 500 other witnesses saw the risen Jesus. And you know one of the greatest evidences I see of the, the resurrected Christ 
as we read through the New Testament, is these timid, fearful disciples turned into bold witnessing machines who were prepared to die for the sake of their Lord. The church grew as the message of Christ's burial, death, and resurrection went through Jerusalem, through Judea, through Samaria, through the uttermost parts of the world, down to Canterbury Gardens Community Church in 2018. That is the greatest witness of the resurrection, is changed lives. I see them in the audience here. You who were far off from the promises of God have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. That is good news. The church continues to grow. Christianity continues to provide salvation for all humanity, the only way of salvation. So what does the resurrection affirm? It affirms several things. Sin has been conquered. Number one, the debt that all men pay has been conquered by the resurrected Christ. Secondly, God's wrath against sin has also been satisfied. Jesus becomes our sin bearer. He becomes he bears our sin on our behalf because you know what, folks? You and I can never jump that canyon of between God and ourselves. We can never cross that canyon. All our good works, all our good deeds, everything is as filthy rags before the holy God. You've heard this before, but if you were to stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon... And if you're reasonably good at long jump, you could still give your best effort ever and jump as far as you could, but you still would be well short from going from one side to the other. That's the chasm that's between a holy God and a sinful humanity. There's no way you and I can bridge that chasm. No way. It can only be done through Jesus Christ and the power of his resurrection. Thirdly, the resurrection ensures what we call our right standing before God, our justification. Romans 4.25 says this, It will be counted to us, or reckoned to us, to us who believe in Christ, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for the trespasses, or delivered up for our sins, and raised for our justification. The resurrection, faith and trust in the fact that Christ has died and risen again guarantees your justification. It also ensures your regeneration. We've been working through the book of Ephesians and we have these wonderful verses in Ephesians chapter 2. Let's get there and read them to you. You would think naturally that my Bible would just float to Ephesians at the moment, but it's not doing it. <laughs> Here we are, Ephesians chapter 2. 
Verse 5, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ. The resurrection guarantees our regeneration. We who were dead in our sin will be raised alive with Christ. As we walk down that road into eternity through the path of death, if we have our faith and trust in Christ, we'll be raised with him into eternal life, a glorious eternal life. And that is so encouraging. Another thing that guarantees us is that we'll receive a perfect resurrected body. 1 Corinthians 15 talks about that. Jesus is known as the first fruits of, of the resurrection and, and we will receive a body like his. Don't ask me how that happens. It's a mystery, but it happens in a twinkling of an eye. Don't ask me what age your body will be. I have no idea. But Jesus will change our bodies to be like his. So at the beginning of the service, I asked you to rate what you thought about Easter by using some punctuation marks. If Easter was a comma, you just stop and you do nothing about it. If Easter was a full stop, it's very similar. You just say, oh, I've heard it. I don't think it's true. It really has nothing to do with me. For some, that may be a question mark. I hope this morning as we've looked at God's word that you understand it's not a question mark, it's a significant question. The fact that Jesus died and paid the price for your sin is an incredible truth. The fact that he rose again means that he accomplished what he came to accomplish. And the blood of Jesus and his cross is the only way you can be reconciled to God. It's the only way you can be saved. It's the only way you can be guaranteed eternal life in his presence. The alternative is horrific. Because if you're not in God's presence, you're in eternal torment for a long time. His resurrection proves that sin has been dealt with and when you place your faith and trust in him, in his burial and resurrection, we can be assured, assured with great assurance that he will never take you out of his hands and you will have a place in eternity with him. And this is a gift of God's grace. Nothing you can do can earn that. It's God's grace alone. I appeal to you today if you have a question mark and you have a stirring within your soul about these things. Don't go away from today not being satisfied by the answers you give. Place your faith in Christ. 
He is the resurrection and life. For most here, you describe Easter as an exclamation point. It's a time of gratitude. It's a time of praise. It's a time of worship as we consider the resurrection of Jesus. It's a time of great hope. Weren't those testimonies wonderful this morning as we heard from Harry, Rob, and and, uh, Dan? The resurrection provides hope. It provides security. It provides eternal life. I would hope that this morning your response is very similar to the two Marys in this narrative. Let's read it again. Matthew 28, starting at verse 5. Do not be afraid. It's the angel speaking to the Marys. Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he has been risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. Behold, he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. This next verse. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. I think that's a really natural response, don't you? Have they ever seen a resurrection before? <laughs> Have they ever seen an angel sitting on the tomb? And what are you doing? He's not here. Have they ever seen Roman soldiers down like dead men around the tomb? Have they ever seen grave clothes rolled up and wrapped and put placely nice on, on, the, on the bed where the bodies lay? No wonder they had a little bit of fear there. But fear and joy. They ran to tell the disciples. I imagine that run would have been quite quick. I think they would have been eagerly expecting to say to the disciples, this is where it's at. But then see what happens. Jesus appears to them. And behold, Jesus met them and said greetings. What's their response? And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. That's Easter with an explanation mark. We look unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and we worship him. There's no more fitting way to do that than to share communion together. We're going to share communion together. Two very common elements, bread and the juice. Jesus used these elements to remind us of Easter, his death, burial, and resurrection. I want us this morning as we take these elements together, If you have placed your faith and trust in Christ, and for some of you this morning, this might be for the first time, I rejoice with you. Please come and talk to us about that. 
For many of us, we have taken this feast many times. Ask the Lord to, to place on your heart a fresh wonderment at his sacrifice and his glory through his resurrection. This represents God's gift of grace to us. So as the, the bread goes round, please take it, please eat it. And when the, uh, the juice comes round, we'll hold together. We're going to do something a little bit different when we hold and drink that. So hold it and just wait for instructions. So let me pray, and then the uh, emblems will be distributed. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that on this day and every day we can celebrate the resurrected Christ. We thank you, Father, that you sent your Son to pay the price for our sin. We thank you that by his blood we are reconciled and we are redeemed. Father, we thank you that through his death he has conquered death. He has conquered sin. He took on the sin of the world and these symbols represent that very fact. Father, stir in our hearts a deep appreciation and love for our Savior, we pray. Renew us by your Spirit to see the beauty of communion. The beauty that this communion table represents our deep communion with our Savior. So, Father, we just pray as we take these emblems, you will instill in our hearts a, a time of reflection. Help us be before your throne of grace, seeking uh, repentance where we need to repent of sin and, and uh, just basking in your forgiveness for us. We pray these things in the powerful name of Christ, our risen Lord.